this object gets completed on this day and we're this far ahead and that that's that's management leadership is a whole other thing and it largely involves people management involves stuff leadership involves people you're listening to the building a coaching culture podcast if you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice this podcast is for you each week we share leadership development coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm J.R. Flatter, and this is our podcast, Building a Coaching Culture. Our distinguished guest today is Jared Paragoy. And I'm going to let you introduce yourself in a minute. Uh, but I'll just remind everybody who we are and why we're here. So our audience is leaders of complex organizations who are competing and trying to succeed in this 21st century. I don't know if you noticed, but we're in the 23rd year of the 21st century already. In this hyper-competitive labor market and changing culture, expectations of the organizations are changing. So how do we compete and succeed in that market? So that's what we're all about and who we're talking to. So Jared, I'll pass the torch over to you. I'll let you introduce yourself and please brag about yourself a little bit because you have a really impressive biography. Thank you. My name is Jared Paragoy. I am the Deputy Chief Learning Officer for the Civil Air Patrol. And I've been working as a learning professional for a little over 15 years now and kind of been in the business for about 17 at this point. I started at the University of South Alabama in the Professional Studies Program under some excellent instructors, but I really got lucky. I got my graduate assistantship put me into an online learning lab and it really centered it on building online learning products. And that's been the, the work of my career ever since. Mostly started in higher ed and then I moved on to a nonprofit and very large, complicated organizations. So it kind of got me into a very different world. But one thing, I guess if I'm going to brag, the thing that I can say that I've done is I've worked at pretty much every level of the learning process and building things. So when I started out, I was a, you know, grad student, just helping out, clicking buttons, uh, worked as a learning management system integration specialist, an e-learning specialist, instructional designer, learning manager, you know, learning officer. And so really progressed through every, every piece of the chain. I, I've worked on it, touched it, and done a little bit of everything in the process. So I don't come in from one angle or another. I've, I've done a little bit of everything. And I think that's, you know, very much a, a different perspective than a lot of people who have done this, who either came from somewhere else and started at a different level or, or something else. You know, I really did come in at the ground floor and, and work up. So what is a chief learning officer and do I need one? Possibly. The first thing it is, is if you have business problems that fundamentally come down to issues of knowledge or skill and the lack thereof, then that's what a learning officer is for. The purpose is to solve business problems or any organizational problem that come about as a result of a lack of knowledge, skill, or from a talent perspective. If you are experiencing problems and it's because somebody can't do something, they don't know how to do something, and it's from a personnel perspective, that's what a learning officer is for, is to fix those kinds of things. So sometimes technology is involved, sometimes it's not. A lot of times it's culture and some of the problems that you guys are discussing on a weekly basis. This is a really you know big question. Every bit as much of your job is telling people that's not a training problem or that's not a you know a coaching problem. That's a some other kind of problem. It comes from somewhere else. But helping identify those things is, is the, the main job that you do. So in the, the chief in the title would give me the sense that you're part of the executive suite and you're part of the strategic Vision. It's correct. If you wanted to be, if you wanted to work properly, sure. 
otherwise, and if you don't represent learning at that level and talent development, talent management, if that's not represented at that level, and you see some other ways of people expressing it, a lot of times this will fall under our chief chief of HR is the old title, but chief people, there's a lot of different ways people would phrase it, but it all comes down to the same thing is getting the workforce and the people we have ready to do the job that we need yesterday, but also three years from now, five years from now, and, and looking at it from that perspective. If you're not, chances are you're probably creating a lot of training that's not actually meant to solve business problems. Great. Thank you. So speaking of, you know, tools and technology, um, how much work do you do in kind of marketing that those tools internally? Is that a challenge for you? Absolutely. And obviously the last couple of years have put the challenge in the forefront. And you saw it in the school systems that had to go virtual all of a sudden. A lot of people attempt to take old business processes and just make them virtual with the tools that we have, whether it's Office 365 or whatever it is you use to, to flip over. You try to do that. And you saw the schools, they tried to create school just virtually instead of taking advantage of that environment and the flexibility afforded and rethinking how that process works. Rethinking those processes is much harder to get people to do. A lot of people can figure out how to use a tool, you know, Teams or whatever, you know, anything. It doesn't matter. Or Zoom. Everybody can get good at that. Rethinking how you structure things and how you arrange your programs and your systems to take advantage of those is a whole other problem and a whole other process. And that's where you really get into thinking, rethinking things from a learning perspective. So if I could follow up on that, a lot of us were playing catch up. It seems it sounds like you were ahead of the curve by a decade, at least. If you were to give advice to somebody trying to catch up, because we're not going backward, right? What are the top things a leader could think about as optimizing those processes? If you if you do the follow the trail, you know, and they call it a paper trail, you know, how many processes do you have when you're thinking about, oh, well, we digitized that. Did you just make it digital, but you're still technically handing a piece of paper around? And if that's what's happening and looking at every process in that way, if you're still just sending a piece of paper around, even if it's virtual, you didn't really rethink the process. You just digitized it. And that that's not the end of the world, but it's not taking, taking the real step. So when you're thinking about any of your distributions, where's your workforce, where are the people? And it doesn't matter. And we're not, I'm not just getting into like this idea of a remote workforce, but most places, everyone's distributed either in a building or, you know, in the field, however you arrange that. What are your processes using these tools that you, what are ways that you can get more information and more items into people's hands where they are rather than making them come somewhere else? And I mean that even virtually, because ultimately when you talk about virtual learning or engagement, even what we're doing now, when you say, what's the environment? Well, the environment for the learning is still happening inside of a box. It's a screen. That's where it's going to happen. Or even if you're talking about, you know, I need to fill out an approval, it's still happening inside the screen. But where is the person and where are they getting to it? Are they having to go to a website, log into some other system that we don't use every day to do this new thing? If that's happening, you're really pushing them away from their workflow as opposed to putting things right where people want them, right where they need them. You know, if you think about optimization of your desk or something like that, you think about the virtual space as the same thing. So when you tell somebody you want them to see a website, what you do is you say, I want you to go to this place. Even though nobody's going anywhere, we're not moving. It's still, in terms of how we think, it's still a physical space and we still approach it that way. And so when you're thinking about changing, you want to catch up, think about laying out your virtual space as a physical place that your people are going to work and optimizing it in that way. Yeah, I took a note on that one. I'm going to have a chat with my CEO. 
thinking about, you know, you're sharing skills and knowledge, knowledge management systems. Are you also sharing, you know, those cultural touchstones and interactions? And how much do you think about that as a learning manager? You know, it's one of those things that comes about and all of a sudden you realize your culture exists, whether you actively pursued it or not. Every company has a culture and just because they didn't actively try to create one doesn't mean they don't have one. So every organization's got some kind of culture. So if you're not taking proactive steps to doing that, then you're just creating something that you didn't actively pursue. And so if you're not at least considering those concepts in education, a lot of times you'll hear the, the idea of the weave. So you've got these like specific learning objectives you want, but you also want to weave in these other lessons, these bigger kind of concepts. So from a cultural perspective, if you think about something that I want, you know, this is something in our culture. So, you know, one of the big ones most people should be thinking about is sustainability of your workflow. If you're talking about your talent pool, if you're doing lots of work that you want to be, that you want to do consistently, if it's not sustainable, you're not going to manage that. You know, everybody can pull together and put on one great show one time, but if you got to show up and do eight shows a week for 52 weeks, you know, that's hard. You got to have a sustainable system. If you want that, well, you need to start weaving that into every part of your process, of your lessons, of your learning. If you want communication-based culture, you want people to talk more, even like this, you got to weave that into every part of it. And if you don't, you are weaving something else in. The thread's not missing. It's there, but it's not necessarily something you planned or you meant for. So yes, you should be. If you're not, something else is happening. Yeah, you're touching on a theme that we hear a lot. A lot in the literature, but a lot in the, the guests we have. And that is exactly what you said first. And that is you have a culture, whether you create it on purpose or not. And secondly, is it embedded in your strategy? Is it embedded in your mission and vision? And, and every time you talk about the company, are you also talking about the culture? Because other people are talking about it. And it affects all the experiences within, you know, yeah. that culture, you didn't plan for it, but this is the culture. It affects how everyone sees everything you put out, all those processes we talked about, all of that is affected by that same culture. Yeah. When you think about it from a coaching perspective, because we are talking about creating a coaching culture and leading with a coaching style of leadership. When you think about it from the coach's perspective, how are you leading and what stories are you telling about the culture? Because the there's a lot of it related to perception and a lot of it related to behavior. So you have a perception of what your culture is, but your team in the world has a perception of you. And then you behave in a certain way because you think that's the way your culture asks you to behave. But then others are seeing that behavior and saying that isn't consistent with what they said. So it's how are we changing the perception and how are we changing the behaviors, weaving it into everything. I would ask, you know, how do we make sure that our perception and reality are more closely aligned? Oh, yeah. You know, week after week after week of working, because a lot of people can figure it out and they know what to do when everybody's got time to sit around and think. But when when the you know, when it gets to the marrow, when the when the work <laughs> is on and everybody's too busy to do anything, you know, that's when that 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 true culture comes out. And how do you keep, you know, bringing it back to what you're talking about and, and making it better? when everything's hard and everybody's busy and there's no extra time, there are no margins. We've, we filled it all up already. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And speaking of that continuous improvement, how deliberate are you in kind of collecting feedback and making sure that 
what you set up is continuing to, you know, be effective? You know, it's always the question you say, how deliberate are you? And it's like, how deliberate do I want to be? And how deliberate, (laughs) you know, does it happen on a daily basis or two different things? Of course, you know, you collect a lot of information, both directly from the people involved and then from the, the meta stuff that you can look at to continuously improve on things. And so one of the things, you know, it's a project I've got kicking off soon is, is, you know, kind of a redesign of some of the work we do from a programmatic perspective. You know, sometimes things get read as technology issues. And honestly, the technologies work in the way that someone made it work. Can we solve those kind of programmatic issues and the way that we've created those flows and those, those ways that things work because we made them work that way? Those are some of those kind of problems that, uh, you know, one of the projects I'll kick off soon. Would it have been nice to have done it a year ago? And yet you can always say that. So sure, I would love to continuously improve more than we do. And I'm sure everybody who's ever worked anywhere would say the same thing. You got this like, yeah, man, I would love to do more of that. And I wish I could make more time for for those kind of that kind of work. So I use a, what I call the paint model for learning review. There are some really fancy learning reviews and they're very good. But when you're too busy to do that kind of stuff, I use the paint model. It's an iterative model. So you use a look at the presence of, of a learning object. So who uses it? When? Where? How do they get to it? What happens with it? Does it exist? Because you don't need to review it if it doesn't exist yet. The alignment. How well does this particular learning object align with the work that we do? How does it touch to our strategic plan? What's the business problem? Where's the alignment? Why are we doing this? How interactive is it? What is the interaction with it between the users and each other, the users and the content, the users and me, whoever it is? And then the technology, is it up to date? Have we refreshed it recently? Is it using, you know, is it running off of a Swift file, animated file from two decades ago? Like what is it on and have we caught it up? Is it an old PPT file or something that we're running? Like, you know, fixing those kind of things. So the paint model is how I kind of go through that an iterative approach. But the rule is for every object you go to, for everything you're going to fix, you can only pick one. So you can't can't sit there and grind on one course because then you've left hundreds doing nothing. Mm. You got to fix one thing and move on. Can we um, reiterate that for the guests? So the paint, P-A-I-N-T, what was P-A-I, it? So I combined I-N for the interactive. So uh, presence, alignment, interaction, technology. And the basic rule is you pick one and you say, I'm going to address this, I'm going to fix one thing, and then I'm going to move on. And that's one of those things when you talk about continuous improvement, you can almost always make time to find, go fix one thing. Hmm. Um, so if you do it consistently, eventually, you know, things start looking better. Could you talk to us a little bit about your leadership journey? I look at a snapshot of your bio online and it kind of gives me this one second look of where you're at, but talk to us where you came from, where you're headed and any thoughts that you might think would be valuable to our listeners? Yeah, I would say that, you know, I'm still getting used to the idea of being a leader. People that that do, that grind and that want to make, or, you know, if you're one of those kind of things and in my bio, I think that you could look at, you could see maker is one of the things I put in there because my job is largely pretty tangible and it has been for a long time. You know, you can go in and look and see, hey, did Jared make that many things? Yep. Or no, you know, either one is possible. And so the idea that it's like, well, now we want you to just make the whole thing. All of a sudden it changes it from being a management thing to a leadership thing. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, I got to make this hundred widgets. I'm going to manage the flow for how that works. But you start involving lots of other people and problems and equities and all of a sudden, if you're just managing, you're you're just moving lines around a spreadsheet. You have to, at some point you have to make a conscious decision to start leading and taking an active role in 
affecting how your team views the world, that perception you talked about, you know, I need to alter that and change it for how we're approaching things. And so, yeah, I would say that's something that I'm very much in the process of learning right now is how much more there is to leading than just this object gets completed on this day and we're this far ahead and that that's, that's management. Leadership is a whole other thing and it largely involves people. Management involves stuff. Leadership involves people. And so that's, that's definitely a, a, a big part of my role as a deputy chief learning officer. And what I would say is very different from being an instructional designer or something like that. You know, those, not that you couldn't lead in those positions, but I didn't generally have to, I was doing a lot of managing and being a leader involves a lot more of trying to take care of people and what they need to get out of so that we can achieve whatever goal it is that we're trying to achieve. It actually sounds like you've been in one of my lectures. Before I was about to just, say that. <laughs> you just stole like two or three lines out of my favorite uh, juicy lectures. And it is people versus things. And what are you doing? Is it technical? Is it cognitive? Or is it emotional intelligence? And you're, you're recognizing, I and mean, good on you, that it is emotional intelligence, building and sustaining relationships. And I can say I've had a lot of good mentors and, and other people who have, you know, been able to help me do that. You know, everybody that wants to be, you want to get better at working with people, you, people are probably going to be involved with helping you do that. So we also talk about servant leadership, you know, putting others ahead of yourself and, you know, trying to facilitate their growth. Have you been able to kind of transfer some of your education skills into leadership? And how do those transfer, do you think? It's one of those things that when you think about it from the perspective of how am I going to help other people achieve? And so I can say as a employee of the Civil Air Patrol, servant leadership is a big part of our, our leadership culture and what we try to get from our you know national commander on down. It's, it's something that is, is a focus. So that concept is baked into a lot of the mentoring and other things that I've received. But if you're not doing that, then you're just pulling. You know, if you're just pulling people, I'm pulling you up, I'm pulling you along, you're, I'm going to drag you all across this line, kicking and screaming is one approach that might work again once or, you know, but it's not going to be consistent. So that servant leadership is the idea that we're going to get behind and we're going to help push and I'm going to help get everyone and I want you to do this and I'm going to get you because I know that with a little push here and there, we can all be moving a little more strongly than if I'm trying to pull everything. And I think that's that route. But to do that, you got to look at what the push needs to be. And everybody's different and what they need is different. So those skills, a lot of it is trying to take, uh, well, what is the quote? An expert is somebody who's made every possible mistake in a very narrow field. <laughs> um, what mistakes have I, do I know I've made in this narrow field that I can see other people and say, hey, I can help you get around that by uh, doing this. And that's that taking that perspective of what they need, but bringing in your own experience and, and what you know and have confidence in that, you know, because you can't do it if you don't believe it. You know, leaders lead, that's first and foremost. So you got to go first. But how do you get that confidence to, to say, no, I see this in you and I can do that and bring it and help you with this? I just saw on somebody's LinkedIn that it said they're a T-shaped designer. So they're like an inch deep on a lot of things, but then very deep on one thing. I thought that was mm. interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. So I also see in your bio that you're a coach. It says coach and you're, you're a maker and a coach and a couple of other things. So, but I'm going to keep those in reserve for now. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, what does being a coach mean to you? And when we're talking about a coaching style of leadership, what should that mean to our listeners? 
So one, I want to say that I have also been a literal coach. One okay. of my jobs in college was uh, coaching t-ball, and I uh, really enjoyed it and was very good at it. So one, actual coaching. But I also think, you know, from the coaching perspective, when we think about we're bringing that word over, and a lot for most of us, it's got this sports connotation. And one of the advantages that comes with that is the results are so tangible. The outcomes are so specific and tangible. So if you're like this coaching perspective, you've got this very specific concept. But if you remove the outcomes and you just think about when as, you know, when I was a kid with coaches or anyone else, my experience, because the word has that meaning, you know, the the times where you're in the games or anything like that, that that live session, that's not what you remember about a coach. What you remember is all the time spent in practice and everywhere else. When you look back and you think about that and what did that mean for for those people and that. So when you're thinking about being a coach, it's not that that one big thing that we did at the end that was successful or failure, but all the times in between that day to day activity and engagement with people. And again, you know, back to that concept, you're, you know, that culture exists, you're leading, you know, one way or another, poorly or not, it's happening. The same thing concept with coaching. Are you helping the people to do a little better for themselves every time and giving them what it is that they need at the time they need it to take an, another step and, and to get a little better at this thing that we're all trying to do together. Yeah. And to your point, there really is no relationship between the coaching you did in T-ball and the name coach. It depends on who you ask. Some people they say it came from the city where it was first started practice and hundreds of years ago, actually. I strongly suspect there's a, a book named The Trillion Dollar Coach. And he was out in Silicon Valley and he coached at all the big name companies in the Silicon Valley. And he was a high school football coach. And so everybody called him coach. I kind of think that might've had something to do with it. But when you're trying to draw that analogy too strongly, that's not normally what necessarily what we're doing when we talk about being a coach. So thinking about kind of on a micro level, like with, you know, transitioning from management to leadership, do you have any advice that you would give somebody making that transition? One, always uh, talk to somebody who is a leader for you, you know, first and foremost, you know, get that perspective. And you, because the first step is always recognizing that you need to, you know, that I, I can't manage, I have to lead. That's, that's the first step. But then who is it that you see as a leader? What can you take from them? Look to that. And hopefully it's somebody that you can interact with directly, you know, whether it's your direct supervisor or someone else that you've got real, you know, easy access to to talk to them about that process and, and actively make a choice and then think about what's your next event? What's that next moment you're going to get where you're going to have this opportunity to set that tone, create that culture, do that thing, make a real plan for that, you know, lay it out, work hard on this one, you know, this, this thing I'm going to do and make a plan to really hit it hard one good time. And then, you know, think about what are two, three things I can do each day to take advantage of this opportunity and then find that next opportunity, you know, make a plan and hit it hard again. But really, you know, when I made that, I know when the light came on for me, it's like, I cannot manage. I have to lead. We had a, there was a large meeting, cross-functional team, a lot of people involved. And I said, all right, I got to make a really good plan for this, this thing to really set a new tone for what I want this to do and how I want to achieve these things. And making that change for yourself will affect that perception and those other things. So you are a learner. What does it mean to be a lifelong learner? We hear that all the time from our distinguished guests. We talk about it. We help people build houses of leadership. And the final 
arch on the house is lifelong learning. What does that mean to you? Fundamentally, it means that one, nothing else stops just because you became an expert in some field. You know, nothing else stops moving. Nothing else, you know, quits growing and failing and dying and all these things happening around you. All that's going to continue to occur. That change occurs regardless. So if you are not continuing to try to make a choice, you know, whether you want to categorize it as lifelong learning or just saying, I'm going to learn a new skill every year, however you want to approach it, you are ultimately saying, I'm done. The skill I have is enough, which can't possibly be true because how could it? And I don't have to, I'm, I don't have to ever learn anything else again like that. You know, when you think about the, the negative, what's the alternative to not being a lifelong learner? It's like, well, I'm perfect the way I am. I never have to know a thing from here to the end of time. It can't be true. So the other one has to be. Well, was it the Luddites? No. Everything yeah, that's ever yeah. going to be invented, it's been invented. <laughs> and we still use, uh, the, we still use uh, their name from however yeah, many, yeah. you know, <laughs> to describe the same concept that just, it can't be right. And, you know, I recall, and this is one of those, you know, you get to tell these stories as an online learning person. Many years ago, I was working and, and had a, a college professor look at me and say, do you really think this online learning thing is going to, you know, that's not going to last, right? <laughs> it's like, I can't tell you the future, but I can tell you there will not be fewer online courses tomorrow than there are today. That just can't be right. You know, it doesn't make any sense. And I think a lot of that came from this perspective that students don't want to do it that way. And what they weren't mm. seeing is that the people you're talking about are going to show up in your classroom. Absolutely. The people who sign up for this stuff are a totally different audience that never, you never even thought of that existed. And so that's the, you know, those changes when we, if you limit yourself to only what's here, yeah, sure. You can stop learning, then you'll probably be okay. But since that's probably not going to be the entirety of the universe, you should probably keep learning stuff. So to quote JR, I'm not sure if this is a quote from somebody else, but being a lifetime learner is also being a lifetime novice. Is there anything in your personal life with hobbies or whatever you're working on outside of your professional life that you're kind of in that novice mode now? Totally. I, uh, you know, I've with, with like many other people, I took up hobbies with the pandemic. And so I attempted to, you know, garden. And my first year, I managed to grow some plants that all died. And my second year, I successfully grew one plant. You know, there were some others that, that grew, but they never actually did anything. They never, you know, it was vegetable gardening and never got anything. This year, I got a few plants that uh, did some well. I got a few vegetables, some stuff off of it. And now they are currently being eaten by whatever pest I cannot seem to prevent. And so this year, you know, I was like, oh, man, I'm good at this. I'm, I'm like a farmer. Yeah, no, not even a little bit. You know, one sort of caterpillar seems to be destroying all of my efforts, no matter what I do. So, yeah, I mean, and obviously anybody who's a, a parent knows what it's like to be a novice every day of, the, of, of your yeah, life God, all the time. Um, so both of those things sure um anything anything you ever try to do to do that's new you're like oh man i'm really bad at this uh, and sometimes you really are and sometimes you're just new gardening's <laughs> got to be a tough one because the frequency of iteration you're you're limited by you know us going around the sun so yeah i don't know man my youngest is 30 years old and i'm still learning every day <laughs> <laughs> i mean just um, cannot stress it enough i know right so i Got one or two directions to go here. Talk about your nonprofit or talk about if I need to hire you, what do I need? What questions do I need to ask you to make sure you know what you're doing? I think I'll ask that one. So you've convinced me I need a, I need a learning officer. How do I know I'm going to get one that's worth their salt? What questions should I be asking them? 
first of all, I guess the real thing you want from a learning officer is someone who's who will tell you that's not a training problem. You know, because the first thing everybody wants to solve something through training, we'll just make them do training. You know, we've got this uh, compliance issue. I will just do training, which is, you know, really just for the lawyers. It's not for to actually improve anything. When you throw training at problems that aren't training problems, you will get training and you'll have this outcome. You say, oh, man, everybody's got this pretty certificate. They all did it. I can show all these outputs. And then the outcome never changes because you never mm -hmm. identified you never did any of that. So because the first thing you want, the only reason you would need a learning officer is because you want to actually solve problems. Um, and so that would be the first thing I said. You want to make sure you want somebody who's going to tell you that's not a training problem. Mm. Training camps can't fix that and we can't use it for that. So that's the first thing. The second one I would look for, I guess you want something, someone who's good at working with lots of different areas, which is one of those things that a lot of people from a learning design or anything like that get a habit of because you have to work for everybody and do things for everyone. But you want somebody who's comfortable working in a lot of different kinds of environments. Because otherwise, you're you're saying that I'm going to create a culture that focuses on one person's preference of environment or this kind of thing or that kind of thing. And you need someone who will come in, learn about your organization, how to solve the problems that are here and now, and not try to apply any other system or program or something to solving your problems because chances are they aren't going to work. You, know, you need somebody who's going to look at where, where you are, what you have, and how do we solve our problems and do it that way. Any certifications, accreditations? Um, uh, you know, the, the American Talent Development, Talent Development Association, Association of Talent Development has the Certified Professional in Learning and Performance or Certified Professional in Talent Development now. Obviously, that's, that's a good one for somebody. If you want someone who's a genuine learning professional, you know, you can't get that one without, without have, being that. And so that's certainly one. Obviously, there's, if, if you're looking at it more from the people perspective from that talent side of it, there's a lot of HR, you know, the certified human resources manager, those kind of things would definitely show someone with experience. But for problem solving, yeah, I mean, those, those are probably the two. So I've heard a definition of intelligence as being able to handle some degree of ambiguity. Like it's not just a set problem with set parameters, but going out and figuring it out. So can you teach somebody to handle that ambiguity or is it kind of just you have it or you don't? That is a great question. It's one of those things. So here's, a, let me just, uh, to narrow it just a little, more, a little bit more. Can you teach somebody to be better at troubleshooting? You know, this is one of those things that if you've worked in any kind of technology-based enterprise ever, you know that you spend a lot of time troubleshooting problems and some people are good at it and some people aren't. Well, can you improve that? And chances are, yeah, probably you can improve just about anything. There's got to be a way you could make someone better at that it might be they need training. It might be they need coaching. It might be they need other, you know, other approaches. So if you can do that, then by definition, you should be able to help people work with ambiguity. One of the things I teach, try to you know, weave into all of my courses is that you always have to look for the negative. And I don't mean that in like a you know, optimism, pessimism thing, but look for the negative space in a problem. So don't always look for what is there, but look for what is not there. And so when you're thinking about ambiguity, oh man, if you like logic puzzles or anything like that, you're like, this person's taller than that person and that person's here and all that. You know, if you just look for what is, you will never be able to fix those kind of things and solve that because they're left very seemingly ambiguous. But if you can look for what is not, a lot of times you can solve those problems. So I have to believe that, yes, you can make people better at that because I assume that I've gotten better at dealing with those kind of things through both experience and some, some fantastic training and, and mentoring. Well, very early on in your comments, you talked about a learning management system. A couple of things. What is it? 
should I try to build my own and do I need help? For the most part, I would say, no, please don't try to build your own. <laughs> Not that you couldn't possibly, you might have the most amazing IT team that could do it and your return on investment was good. But I mean, they're, they're, they're very few and far between and there's so many of them out there. So a learning management system is really a place and these words get used interchangeably and to a lot of times to mean the same thing, but it's really a place where you track people's learning in a digital space. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you had to learn online. Technically, you could you would manage people's learning even in a face-to-face -face environment needs mm. to go live somewhere. So fundamentally, that's what a learning management system is. But oftentimes we combine content management, you know, those learning environments, those learning platforms all get kind of combined together. We tend to use them generically as learning management system, LMS. So, you know, the big academic ones are things like Blackboard, Canvas, you know, Moodle, famously uh, for a long time, is, is still out there and free. There are a lot of those kind of systems. There are, however, countless corporate style systems for pretty much any size organization. If you have to do any large amount of training, and by that I mean, you know, more than a half a dozen at onboarding, or at least in a continuous fashion, you should probably at least consider some way to track and manage that kind of stuff. There are lots of different options for those kind of things. And I don't really have a preference. Honestly, to me, they're all the same. In the end, they all kind of work the same way. They do the same things. Some are a little better, some are a little worse, but it's, it's really simple. Yeah, you should probably consider it if you need to do anything. And if you're a large organization, chances are you're using something as a learning management system, whether you're doing it actively or not. I guess, you know, when you're um, like a painter or you're into some sort of craft, everyone's always asking you, okay, what what kind of paintbrush do you use? What what paints do you use? And the artist will always say, you know, it doesn't matter as long as you have all the experience and training and practice. So you said like, you know, I don't care which system. I'm assuming that's because of, you know, you've got the perspective and everything. Do you find that people get too hung up on which tools they should use? Very much so. That's always a problem. And don't get me wrong, there are some great tools that make things easier. So I'm not saying, you know, if you lack some of that skill, there are certainly, especially now in the modern era, there are certainly areas and places that give you a lot more tools to do things. You know, and even if you think of it from a word processing perspective, like, you know, it's a whole lot easier to type in a word than even using an electric typewriter or, you know, so tools can make a difference. Don't get me wrong. But in the end, ultimately, the spec, how wide apart they are is not very high. So yes, we do over rely on them, but there are also some great ones that make things a lot easier for a lot of people to do things. So don't get me wrong, but I did come up, I started out with e-college, went to Blackboard for many years, the Blackboard WebCT mix, Blackboard again, and you know, now we've done some several different legacy and corporate systems. Most of the time, eventually you're going to go, you're going to touch everything at some point. I've used Moodle, D2L, there's a bunch of them and they're all about the same. I could see some headhunters going to try to steal you away from Civil Air Patrol based on that last <laughs> set of comments there, because they're like, oh, that's easy? I need you. <laughs> well, fair enough. Because um, we've been down this road. Lucas and I have been down this road. It was not easy. So what did you guys do? Just, you know, we're talking shop here. What did you guys do? Well, Lucas knows we, better than uh, I do. I could say the two words. We hosted Moodle, and... Moodle through Moonami, so like a hosting, um, mm -hmm. like third-party service. But it, it is a lot of work to kind of dial it into what you want it to be and like you know which features aren't important versus which are really important you know sure yeah and so there's this idea of uh and some of the the corporate systems really think about it this headless system which is really gives you all this flexibility which some people really need the 
flip side of that though is you know looking at the negative you now have all this flexibility which means you have to make every little decision about everything that maybe in a, a system with a head you wouldn't have to do all of that you wouldn't have as much control you wouldn't be able to do as many fancy things but you also wouldn't have to do quite so many fancy things so there's <laughs> there's a give and take there and i'm not surprised especially with something like moodle really dialing something like that in that's open source and, and could be anything you wanted it to be mm. yeah i believe mm -hmm. it yeah, you remind me of the farmer that you ask directions who's lived there their whole life. They know exactly how to get there. Oh, yeah, that's easy. You just <laughs> you go that way. You'll be fine. Just go that way. You and, can't miss it. You know, they don't mean that, you know, they're, not, they're leaving out 10 different steps you're going to have to take because they don't know any other way to do it. Yeah. Sure. So for my last question, I want to bring it back to culture. We've read a lot about big companies reinventing their culture. Several of the Silicon Valley companies, I won't mention them by name. And one of the lessons they learned was to involve their internal human resources chief learning officer uh, as a, not just a resource, but leading the charge along with them, the CEO. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? If you've had any experience there. I think one of the reasons why you might see that is because typically a role like learning, that's not an operational, you know, it's a support function in of itself. But it is more like IT in that everybody's got some equity in it and it has equity with everyone. And so if you're thinking about changing your culture and you want an area that can kind of work on that kind of stuff that also has equity everywhere and that everyone has equity with, it's, it would be a prime candidate. You're probably not going to identify too many other, you know, there are no other functional areas, you know, the operational chain, your process chain, they've got their own work. They're not going to be able to take on spreading culture other than do it you know just we do our job and we're gonna do our part for the culture but they can't do it for everyone whereas learning kind of has a responsibility to the whole organization or human resources or people however you want to phrase it they all have that responsibility in the same way that everybody's got it equity everybody has that people equity and so that i definitely think that's why and that's that's the reason that if you want to make those changes and you have the the, the talent in that area to do that you should at least consider it and it's a great way to spread that kind of message you know, you could see some of that through your comms, but a lot of times your comm focus is external. You know, that's not mm -hmm. as focused mm -hmm. on your internal audience where, you know, like a learning office or a human resources, anything like that is going to be focused on your own people. Well, that's great insight. Thank you. So just uh, kind of like a crowd-pleasing question. Um, are there anyone in, in um, like a historical figure or even somebody in pop culture that that you've kind of looked up to and has helped you in your role? You know, you always wanted to go uh, with the, the great teachers and coaches or anything like that, you know, from a learning person. But, uh, you know, I read a lot of books and there's various people. Let's see if I'm going to pick one, I'll pick a, pick a coach. Um, Lou Brown in major league, probably my uh, personal favorite is a favorite as a child. And so I know I inherited a lot of tendencies from those kind of, from that movie and, and approaches to things pop culture person to look up to, you know, if it's not Ron Swanson or something like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, from a work perspective, I don't know. What about you? What's yours? You know, I, I mine changes all the time because I'll like f figure someone out and then go read their bio or something. So lately it's been like Tony Hawk I've been really into just because he says, you know, I'm, I wasn't the best physically. I wasn't the biggest. I wasn't the strongest. And I was just willing to take more slams than everyone else. So that's a good one. That is good. Yeah, that's great. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you 
If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or a review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again and we'll see you next time.